Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast, In the Barrel with Cap and Mac. I'm John McMahon, and I'm luckily joined by the big man, the one and only John Kaplan. How you doing, Cap? I'm doing fantastic, buddy. Doing fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation today. It's going to be great. Hey, Cap, today we're joined by a chief revenue officer who I met many years ago in Italy when he was selling frozen foods prior to joining the company that I was at. Since then, he joined PTC as a sales rep, and he quickly grew through the ranks to be a regional director. At that time, the regional director was not the first line. It was like second line, third line. From there, he moved to Geotel, where he ran all of Southern Europe until Geotel acquisition by Cisco, where then he became the VP for EMEA sales for Cisco's advanced technologies. Then he moved to Portal Software as the VP of EMEA sales. And after Portal, he became the VP of EMEA sales at Blade Logic until the Blade Logic acquisition by BMC where he then became the SVP of worldwide sales. Then he ran his own consulting firm, L2 Consulting, before jumping back into the hot water as the senior vice president international sales at Fuse, and then moving to his current position for the last five years as the chief revenue officer of Sprinkler, where he was responsible for driving the company from private to a successful IPO cap. Please help me welcome my friend, a vastly experienced and very talented Luca Lazarone. Luca, dude, it's uh, it's great, great to see you, buddy. I was talking to John earlier when we were talking about scheduling you, and I cannot believe how long it's been since we actually, like how long we've known each other, because I've worked with you in so many different roles uh, in your career, it's uh, it's hard to remember how long we go back, but I'm really, really thankful you're joining us, buddy. Great to see you. Buongiorno. <laughs> Buongiorno. Buongiorno, Luca. Oh, it's my pleasure, John and John. I struggle to call you Mac and Cap, so I'll do my best, okay? All right. But uh, no, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I've been watching the episode, so it seems you are not getting anybody bored, right? You're awesome, as always. Yeah. Well, Luca, you know, you've had an amazing, you know, career career in, in software sales leadership. Let's go back to the beginning, though. So when I met you, you had just joined the company, but you were selling, you know, frozen food. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges you might have encountered from selling frozen foods to going and actually selling enterprise software. Yeah, thank you, John. So it's interesting. I, I always said, I figured out earlier on when I was still at college that I had a passion for number one, selling, and two, uh, hopefully, you know, at the beginning, leading a team, even if I didn't know what it meant at all. <laughs> 
And then, uh, and then you're right. I was in a company. It was actually a German company that was doing the delivery of frozen food. I was the, the branch manager there, uh, right out of college, and um, and I really enjoyed it. But um, it was like I was waking up 5 a.m. in the morning, go to you know the branch. There was 24 sales delivery guys showing up and then there was all the people in so there was a total of 40 people and then i was coming back home around midnight and making very very little money and then <laughs> a friend of mine that was working in ptc was an account executive or however we call it at that time in padova that uh, one saturday night i came up with my very cheap car and he show up with a nice brand new audi right and I'm there, right, managing 40 people, getting mad every single day. And the guy show up and he tell me everything about how great it is, the sales methodology and everything that was going on there, going to Boston for training, where a couple of, you know, crazy guys shouting at them. You probably know some of them. <laughs> but learning so much and, uh, and making, you know, triple the money I was making. So I figured out that I was probably in the wrong place for the ambition that I had. Not because the company was bad, it was just a very different industry that would have probably not been giving me the same opportunity. So then he made a referral and that referral the first time was trash. You probably don't know the story even, John. It was trash because who's gonna hire in software someone that is actually doing the frozen food delivery? And then I was lucky, another friend of mine met the second line manager of that era and again made that referral. You probably remember that time there was the booking goal, right? The numbers to make, but there was also the headcount that you had to do it absolutely by the quarter. So I think they were quite desperate at that time. So they said, you know, we're going to look at this guy. <laughs> short, uh, short on candidate. So then... Luckily enough, I made it through. I was barely speaking English. Well, you may say that you, I still barely speak English. I speak a macaroni English. But um, in basically three weeks, uh, I did the three interviews. And then there was uh, the, a, another US guy running EMEA. And it was right before Christmas. I was supposed to fly to London. He said, no, I'm going to go back home to Boston. And we interviewed for 10 minutes. And then I got the job. And now I was happy. But I had no idea what I was doing because I had no process, no qualification methodology. First, I started figuring out there were two different things, the sales process and the qualification methodology. And I still have to explain it after all these years, dear John and John. <laughs> but um, but it, was, uh, it was phenomenal because then I got to learn actually that there was some science behind you know, that. And that... Um, and I learned how important it was to be disciplined and learning. And I was so lucky because the pool of talent uh, at that time in PTC was a phenomenon. But the, to answer your question, the most difficult part was that in my mind, I knew what I was doing before, right? And it's not true. I had probably the talent for it, but you know, the talent doesn't bring you too far. Right. So I needed, you know, a sales school, a sales academy, like PTC was at that time. And, that would give me the, the structure to understand how to be more effective, the tools to use, what to be, what to care, and what are the priorities. And that I still consider the best lesson I ever learned. Hey, Johnny and Luca, I want yeah. to, because uh, I know you're probably going to jump off the food thing pretty quickly, but 
Um, I'm actually very intrigued by that start for you because Johnny, we speak to so many CROs today and everybody's got a process and they're all about the science of assessment and, you know, having good uh, job descriptions and success profiles. And, and Luke, I know that you've made this a science too for yourself. Give us some advice on the art because Johnny, you know, one of my favorite of hires of yours is the guy named Adam Aaron's that you met selling knives in your, uh, you know, in your kitchen. He's a legend. He's a legend. Yeah, and he's a legend in technology. Yeah. So would you guys just mind sitting with that for a second and just giving some advice out there? There is science, but there's also an art where that comes together. And Luca, how, what have you learned over the 30 years or so since then of how do you not miss a Luca somewhere because they're working in something that's falling outside of your jobs, uh, job description? You are so right. And obviously I learned it because when I look back at what the chances I got, it forced me actually to always look for that. And uh, the, the fundamental that I always look is the ability to connect. You know, we always talk about curiosity and empathy. And you, I can see immediately if someone is trying to speak the same language of the person that is in front of you. That is so important, not only in an interview process, but more importantly, when we go out and sell something, hopefully. So that ability to connect at the empathic level, at the personal level, I think that is part of that art, that talent that you can spot. Then is definitely the, the curiosity. The fact of not only making intelligent questions that show you are prepared, but also going deep, not accepting superficial answer, right? So that is actually a talent, way more than the process, because the process tells you, you know, what question to ask. It doesn't tell you, you know, what answers to accept. That is a different concept. And then, you know, sometimes you see that even great in theory great sales guys that follow the entire process properly they are not so good because they don't go deep enough and they do not uh, you know they accept you know the superficial answer but um, yeah but i'll give you an example going back like you know when i was at college right like you actually after yeah no, after i finished high school we go out a bunch of guys in that summer we rent an apartment uh, and it was an apartment for four people. We were nine or ten, right? <laughs> the Adriatic Sea, you can imagine. The problem was that we rent this apartment and the owners are on the top floor there. So at that time, I figured out I was pretty good selling simply because when we mess everything up, they sent me to the owners and said, Tell them something else. Tell them that, you know, the, that, you know, we brought back that was not working properly. I say it was food poisoning. No, it wasn't drug. It was food poisoning. But uh, seriously, that ability to connect, I think, is what uh, I'm always fascinated. Yeah. I also think, uh, Cap, so what Luke is really describing is it's, uh, you know, in sales, there's definitely the science part, but there's a huge art part and Luke is talking about the art part, but when you really listen closely, he's also talking about key characteristics of the person. So, yeah. 
that's what I've always found. I mean, we've hired people that were selling sales and frozen foods and all and, and knives and all kinds of commodity items, but you weren't hiring them because they could sell the commodity item. You were hiring them because of their characteristics that you saw when, like, let's say when Adam was selling me the knives, I could see his character character. And, you know, I was hiring that. Yeah. And probably Luca back in the day, you wanted something, you came to that interview. So you're going to have to show something higher than the average person that's going for that interview. And you personally were witnessing a scenario that the only difference between you and your friends was opportunity was an opportunity to be in that technology sales. And so that the, the motivation that you bring to an interview or an opportunity like that is kind of like, you know, my memory of people in those situations is they have to have it and they interview like they have to have it. Yeah. Um, you can sense the drive in Luca. The time that I met him, I still remember that when I met him yeah. the first time I could just sense the drive, sense the determination in him. And that's, you know, that's the character. I love it. One last thing I want to ask about this, Johnny, and then I'll let you move on the career progression because I know we want to dig into a lot of really great topics here. One of the things I really loved about your background, Luca, in that in that frozen foods uh, was your you got a break because they actually made you when you became a manager, you had to sit in all the roles that made up that branch. So you had to sit in sales. You had to sit in delivery. You had to sit in uh, probably the finance and accounting. And I really found this. We don't do that really anymore. When we put people in leadership roles and we tell them they have to collaborate and they have to align with others. You actually, in your first job, you actually had to see the world from other people's perspectives. Could you just contemplate that for us on how you've kind of carried that forward through your career? Yeah, absolutely correct. It was three months of training on the job, but not on your job, on each role that I was supposed to lead, you know, in yeah. the breath. So there was, like you were saying, the accountant, there was the, the, the two-person managing the cell that is the store. The problem is that yeah. is six degrees below Celsius, right? So I don't know, in Fahrenheit. And you had to actually wear that special things, get in, get frozen for 15 minutes, get out, otherwise you run out of oxygen. I had to do that for three months. First, it was like, let's see who's going to survive on this. Yeah. <laughs> and not survive. survive was like 18 young managers that were supposed to take over 18 branches across Italy. I think 12 of us survived. But uh, it was a, a great lesson because it forced you to know what those jobs were on a day-to-day basis. And to answer your question, um, it's kind of, um, it, it seems obvious, but people sometimes underestimate that if you want to lead a team, you got to be credible. You have to know what you're talking about in details because otherwise there is no way you can inspire the people and coach them on a daily basis on what that job is about and how to do it better. And then after you inspire and coach, then you you have to also inspect if they're doing what they're supposed to do. But you got to go through that first. And if you don't know what the roles are about, what do you expect from it? It's quite hard. And this is when actually you only inspect 
If you don't do that, then people get frustrated because they talk about micromanagement, right? If you don't actually inspire and coach before. Mm. So it was a phenomenal lesson from that point of view. You're right. Yeah. Awesome. Let's, awesome. let's stay on that a little bit, Luca. You know, in your career progression, you know, you know, PTC, Geotel, Cisco, you know, BMC, all those different things. What are the top three things, if you can think about them, three, four, or two, whatever is good for you, of the things you think about that you most learned throughout that career on, you know, leading teams? Well, the first thing, and, and I got that you, at the beginning was hard, but then, thanks God, I realized that was pretty easy for me, was do not ever think you're the smartest person in the room. <laughs> Never a problem for me. <laughs> Never a problem for me either, especially now, but at the beginning, right? When you're young and you got a new job, you think you know it all. And uh, I got a couple of bosses. One is in the room here, in the virtual room, that actually taught me that in the right way. But actually, that forced me to, you know, to there is a book I love, Mindset by Carol Dweck, to really have a growth mindset, to really understand that you can learn from anybody. And if you want to go from A to B, yeah, there is your talent, but there is a lot of learning, lessons, battles you're going to lose. Learn from that. Don't do the same mistake again. So I made a lot of mistakes, hopefully not major mistakes, but I think I learned to, the thing I'm more proud, I learned from each of them and hopefully don't do that again. The other thing is, um, is that, and I keep saying this to every E nowadays after all these years, you can win alone if you really want. It's not that smart, but you should be very, very, not very smart to lose alone. Right. Never lose alone. Ask for help. Ask for help earlier on. Try to figure out the red flags very, very early on. So working together with your peers, if you're in sales, with your pre-sales, your partner, you know, your SDR, you know, all these people, and try to leverage everybody, give you more chances. So those were two or three things. Uh, then if we go into leadership, there are many more, obviously. But, uh, but you know, understanding you can learn in every single step, in every single meeting, and forcing you to think that way, I think it helps. I probably have so, no choice. So, Luca, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bounce now a little bit to almost to where you, you are now at, as a CRO at Sprinkler. And... We get a lot of questions where people, you know, aspire to be the CRO. Let's talk a little bit about since you took Sprinkler from private to public, what did you need to worry about as a CRO before you went public? And what did you need to worry about after you went public? How many days we have? <laughs> <laughs> Let's pick a couple. I could help you if you want, but I know you know the answers. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's first, more to educate the audience. No, no, I'm kidding. So first, uh, I, I have a slightly different definition of CRO. Yeah, we all know it is chief revenue officer. In my case, I think it's more chief repeating officer. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, it's true because you have to make sure that, uh, especially while you scale the organization, private or public at that, still at that point doesn't change. You have to make sure actually there is a consistency on the message. 
And in my case, again, being Italian, speaking barely English, I want to make sure that what I think and what I say is received in the way I originally thought. So mm. the clarity of the message, the clarity on how to work and simplify as much as possible the way we work, I found it super critical to scale when you're private and when you're public. In terms of uh, you know, running a public company versus a private company, I'm not sure if you really want to do it <laughs> because uh, it's all about, you know, there is so much more scrutiny on everything you do. So we are all fascinated by that. But uh, someone told me this years ago, be careful what you ask because you may get it. <laughs> yeah. And get it. It's not only about growth. It's not only about... Uh, the headcount, the fundamental remain the same, but you are such an under level of scrutiny on everything for the company that goes from the NDE to obviously the SNM cost to uh, the percentage of new logos versus repeat business. And right now, the street will look at any number that actually do not match and find it. So you have to have a very solid foundation to actually be prepared to bring a company public. And foundation, I mean this, right? When you talk about revenue in the SaaS world right now, obviously the great thing is that in the SaaS world, the revenue compound, right, over time. So the first thing, if you wanna become a CRO public company, you gotta better take care of the revenue that you have right now in a very good way. Because if you have a low level of renewal, the investor, the street will figure out immediately that there's something wrong with the business. And so having the entire company being able to actually make the customer happy and deliver value to the customer is the first thing. Because you can do all the new business that you want, but if from the bucket you're going to continue to lose revenue, mm -hmm. there's no way you can run a public company. So right. that's the thing. Have a solid foundation for the revenue you have in the house, deliver value to your customer, and then, obviously, depending on the space that you're on, the technology that you're on, in our case, we have four suites of product that we sell from advertising to manage the marketing to the customer care around the new digital channel. You got to have actually a very strong persona-based messaging that, uh, and the ideal customer profile, as we all know it, that uh, the entire organization can learn. So the private to public, you got to have a very solid foundation on how you manage the revenue and then a very solid, I think, a way to go to market on the persona, on the messaging, on the ICP and continue to review that because the world changed. We saw what happened in the last few months on the public market and clearly priority changed from the shareholder, from the board, and you have to adapt to it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let me, let me uh, now switch gears to... Um to forecasting. I've always thought you as being one of the best forecasters that I've seen, but not, you know, you're the CRO educate the audience a little bit on, you know, how do you roll up that final number to the CEO? What do you, what do you look at? What are the different types of numbers you look at? How do you evaluate your different teams on what they're going to do as far as you know, a bookings number by the end of the quarter. What do you What are you looking at, and how do you determine on your own? Okay, this is the number. I don't care what the sales force told me or the sales leaders told me. This is the number that I'm going to roll up to the CEO. 
Can you walk yeah. us through that just to educate the audience? Yes. So I divided this in, um, in buckets, like in four categories, right? The first one is uh, you still have to have the live qualification, I call it. And I mean, QBR, Forecast code, you got to get the pulse of uh, the business. And if you see some specific issues that happen over and over again, because otherwise, you know, I'm not doing my job to try to take the barriers down for the sales organization, the success organization. So the discipline to actually run proper QBR, the run proper, the proper weekly forecast call, and be on top with your direct report on the material deals for the company. You should not lose that also because in this way, you also lead by example and your entire organization hopefully is going to run that way. So one bucket is don't lose track of the life qualification of the business. The second one is uh, you got to understand your team, your people, because there is a people factor, right? And uh, if you have a great, you know, sales leader that do great deals, but has an accuracy that is a disaster, then you have to count, you know, that thing that basically one quarter is actually meeting the number, another quarter is messing it up. Uh, so understanding the level of accuracy and the historical data at the people level is super critical because then you can factor your judgment based on how reliable is someone and not reliable is someone else. And, and then you hope that they don't change because if somebody's always sandbagging and somebody always has rose colored glasses, you just hope they don't change because you're factoring that in. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, then there is, uh, so that's the second market. The third bucket is really the leading and the lagging indicator, right? The hard, you know, the real data. So, and, and this is interesting because we look at those data and they can be phenomenal, but they're actually an outcome if you did the right thing before. I'll give you an example. You know, the weighted forecast means uh, that at every stage in your sales process, you give a percentage of probability to close it. So very early on can be 10, 25%. At the end, when in, in, in negotiation, it's probably 80 or 90%. Now, the weighted forecast is really important. Actually, in my case, we always have a 10, 15% maximum range. So that's good. Uh, but it's as good as discipline the team is in the sales process and yes. putting the right opportunity in the right stage. Sometimes people say, okay, oh, you're a great forecaster. Uh, that is an outcome simply because you run a proper sales process and you get a disciplined team. Otherwise, you know, it becomes irrelevant. So the weighted by stage, if you have a disciplined sales organization, is one. The other is the VO coverage, the visible opportunity, so the pipeline after a certain stage. And in each company, you can figure out, you know, what stage that should be. In my case, it's after scope, after there's been enough meetings and we are into something and figuring out what is that. So I don't count pipeline per se where anything is there. I count the pipeline that is, we call it visible, where we are engaged and we know what should be that coverage. Another one is actually looking back one or two quarters at the activities that were done. How many new business meetings, how many benchmark, how many technical deep dive. Because you know, if you have a great forecast right now and it's not backed by enough activities the previous quarter or the second quarter, you may want to dig in because that's something strange. You know, the deals show up 
without activity, probably they're not so solid. Another, especially in SAS today, or a good indicator always to check is the ECAR to renew. So how much upsell and cross-sell you can attach to large renewal that happened in the quarter, that is becoming more and more an important factor. And then I always look and I force the different position, the IE, the first line, the second line, the third line, in checking and flagging what this they put in my number. I call it IMN. And it's interesting because then you can see managers that commit this that are not committed by the E. You want to dig in into it. Because one fundamental rule is you never want to call a number that your team is not calling because you are the only one committed to it. Then. Mm, right. So that's a fundamental. So you got all this uh, data on the leading and lagging indicator. Another one that is the fundamental is, do you have enough capacity for that? Do you have enough productive reps? Because if you start calling numbers that are not backed by the capacity, chances are that probably an inexperienced rep will mess that up. And the last one, and the last one is uh, uh, that I mentioned now, make sure that through the chain, the leaders are not calling numbers over their report. Because Otherwise, if I call you know a million dollar and my team is rolling up seven hundred, am I the only one committed to a million dollar? Right. I have to force them to commit the same deal, make sure they believe into the same. So when you put together live qualification, understanding your team and their accuracy or sandbagging or actually stretching themselves too much, or the leading and lagging on this, like the weighted, the VO coverage, <laughs> the amount of renewal and the discipline are not being over, uh, I think you have a good set, but nothing of this is valid. The right fundamentals on the sales process and the qualification methodology, the medic, the medpick, and the CP. Okay, but now you have five different numbers. You rolled it up. Let's let me see if I got to see you roll it up through the QBR. Then you have the weighted forecast. Then you have the number of new deals and existing deals by deal size. You have you know, these five different things, but maybe they tell you five different numbers. Now Luca has to give the CEO a number. How do you cross correlate or how do you analyze, you know, which number you're going to give? Do you see certain, you know, connections that say, ah, this looks closer to that. And this is the number I'm going to give. Yeah. The, the, the weighted is always pretty accurate. Yeah, because it's historical. It's based upon history. Historical, right? It's historical. And the biggest, the bigger the business is, the less uh, random deals, you know, can screw that up, right? Or, or sizable deal. The weighted is critical. The capacity is critical. And see how, you know, the ramp reps are behaving in the different areas. And then looking also at the productivity track record of the different areas and checking if there is some anomalies on how that is rolling out. If you have these things, uh, they should not be too far away. If they are too far away, then you have a much bigger problem, John. If you have to double click because there's something going wrong on how you train them or the opportunities uh, stages uh, or something else. Yeah. Luca, in in, in your organization, you have Sorry, people that... can, I, can I say one more thing? Sorry, Cap. Please. On, on, on the qualification, right? Uh, let's talk about that for a second, right? Uh, 
medic, medpick, you know, you know, which letter you want to put. Uh, you know what I found recently? And um, people sometimes use over one, right? Like the sales process, the qualification methodology, everything that they need to know. Uh, and we know they're all important. So I'm trying to simplify as much as possible. And then, for example, medic, I always say, listen, if you don't have the CMEI, everything else is irrelevant. If you don't have a champion and right. you have not identified the pain, I really don't trust that you tell me that you have the decision criteria and the control, the decision process, uh, that you are producing metrics, because it's not true. Right, because exactly. Because you have a champion inside that is really checking that information is influencing when you're not there and not. So it's funny, but after all these years, I always, always make one question. Do you have a champion? And obviously they always tell you, yes, I have a champion. Okay, tell me why you think you have a champion. Well, it's kind of a mini champion. Okay, good. It doesn't exist a mini champion, right? And people tend to confuse the coach with the champion and not having spent enough time building. So in the reality, on the forecasting, the qualification methodology, our ability to teach and develop the team on really knowing how to identify and build a champion and how to identify the pain, I think you call it, you know, we call it the pain above the noise, not the small pain that anybody can solve, remains super critical. And it's so easy to spot it. Sorry, Cap. No, it's no, a I love basic it. question. Why do they have to buy? You know, and then why do they have to buy it from us? You can't answer those two questions. And why do they have to buy now? You can't answer those three questions. Take it off the forecast. Doesn't I love it. I'm, I'm going to give Johnny a plug here. So John McMahon, five-time CRO, author of a best-selling book called The Qualified Sales Leader. These things that Luca's talking about right now. Uh, are really, really critical. And I want to follow up with a question to you, Luca. So if you're a young seller right now and you want to be a leader, one of the things that I'm finding is this, this science that you've just described, because you've described science on, and there's an art of forecasting. But I just think that people that are in individual contributor roles, I find that the most mature ones they don't leave it up to their boss to make the call. They don't leave it up to their boss's bosses to make the call. Um, how important, Luca, if I'm an individual contributor and I'm in your organization and I don't forecast very well, either I'm a sandbagger or I leave it up to my boss to make the call or how important is that as kind of like a leading indicator of how difficult it's going to be for that individual to be a leader of many? instead of a leader of themselves. Sorry, that was a long question. Does, was, it, was it clear? It, it is clear and it's super important, not just for the sales organization, by the way. Yeah. yeah. We tend to forget, right? Uh, think about all the resources that are involved in any opportunity in any company before closing, yeah. right? He says to the SDR, to everybody. And if you don't forecast well in one way or the other, is also you lose credibility also with your peers around yeah. all the resources that you use. If you're a pre-sales and you're gonna try to work with the AE that actually you know they're good and they have more chances to close deals. And not that you know they don't know how to build a champion and then don't know how to forecast. So yeah, the credibility that you have to gain as an individual contributor is uh, is super critical. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And then the reality is that 
good leaders push back on this, right? Push back. You always push back to see how the person is forecasting and if they defend it or if they give up immediately. I do also on interviews. Sometimes I push back on a candidate, even if I like the candidate, to see if the leader is the manager, the hiring manager is really committed. And you have all sorts of very interesting reaction because sometimes you know, I push back on a candidate they like and the hiring manager say, yeah, you're right. Say, no, I'm not free. <laughs> so you to tell me why you were not convinced that. And the same is on the deal. Push back and see the one that stand up. They did their homework. Mm. They be into it. So standing up and taking accountability, I think is what you meant, Cap. Yeah. Uh, fundamental factor to demonstrate, you know, the skill set you need in leadership. I also think that in leadership, at the end, you have to have a disproportionate passion for coaching, really enjoying to develop the people, right? And uh, I, I've been so lucky. I worked for John McMahon here for so, so many years in the organization or directly for John. And I don't think there's been one conversation we had in which uh, it wasn't not around the deal or the person what, they were development session. And that's what I keep in my mind. I always take any chance to try to coach my direct or whoever I'm interacting, but you have to have that passion. And, and that is sometimes when you're in the whirlwind with the pressure and everything, some leaders move into the manager box, like I call it, versus a pure leader yeah. in which they don't develop the people, they just try to close the quarter, close the deal, move on to the next one. And this is where you start struggling and developing your organization. Probably. Yeah. Hey, Lucas, so earlier you talked about scaling the sales force and you also talked about the concept of simplifying as much as possible as you're scaling. I've also heard you talk about people, process, and playbook. Can you Talk a little bit to the audience about what you mean by people, process, and playbook when you're trying to scale a sales force. Yeah, and especially when you know you have a pretty large organization, like now in my case, and you have a lot of young leaders, sometimes first time into the job. It could be overwhelming, first, especially in the first line manager position. So I try to give them some building blocks that they can refer to so that uh, they associate uh, the initiative to this and they don't get lost in useless initiative. Give an example, people process playbook, start with people, always. Because you can put all the process and playbook that you want, but if you get C play, you're gonna get C play. <laughs> right. It's that simple, sure. okay? You gotta get the right team in place in terms of the quality of the player and in terms of the capacity that you need, by the way. You always have to be on the right capacity and nowadays, with a great resignation, all those things, the attrition is more important than ever. So if you have the right people and is the recruit and retain all the things that I'm sure other guests, you know, you have here talk about it, then you have to make sure you give them some coverage. They can put their talent into some processes that, you know, will have more chances to be successful. So a proper sales process and a proper qualification methodology. And that has to be constantly reviewed. We got cap here that build a company on the command of the message, the command of the plan. And if you don't give them this structure, there's no way you can scale because they all gonna work in different ways. You right. cannot you cannot build an ideal customer profile and the persona, I don't know. So the process helps you on that. The playbook is about being audible ready in the end. 
So uh, uh, you got to make sure that uh, you equip them with the most effective message for what they do. So if you actually anchor these three concepts and every initiative, every ask that you have to the team, to the leaders, you link it to one of those three. They got to understand better why this makes sense. Otherwise, we just throw things at them and they may struggle to connect it. So it's a good framework to try to understand how to be more effective and why that is important. Yeah, you're really giving them the building blocks, things that they need, and you're trying to focus on them on three you know, key things that matter the most versus all the other things that sales leaders get hit with that yeah. really, at the end of the day, don't really matter that much, right? Yeah, yeah and, and in this way, you hope that they're going to be committed to it, not compliant. Because the risk is that they're going to play the compliance. Oh, yeah, Luca told me, you know, that I got to go through the sales process in this way. But it doesn't mean anything. You got to believe that that gives you more chances to be successful doing it in this way and putting your talent into it. Well, Luca, talk a little bit about that. I, what you just said is really important for me because I see a lot of leaders that lead through compliance and they miss an opportunity to get people committed would you spend a little bit of time talking about what you mean by that? Like, what is the difference between commitment and compliance? Because I see it really missing sometimes with some with some leaders. And it's a, it turns out to be a big gap. It is a big gap. And in my experience, it's simply due to one thing. People tend to be compliant when you tell them what to do and you do not explain why and yeah. what this can make for them. People is committed when they buy into something and becomes their own stuff. Then people is committed. So poor leadership, what do they do? They come into a meeting and say, okay, we're going to have to do this in this way by this time. I see you in a week. And then what, what you're going to get? You're going to get compliance. Different thing is spending all the time required to explain, okay, here's why we use Mavic. Here's why it's important. Here's how this is going to help you on a day-to-day basis. Here's the sales process that we run. You have the different stages. And by the way, there are gates. And I explain you why. And then I always ask, listen, if you have a better way of doing it, please tell me. Because the way we build this is over the years with contribution from everybody. And this is going to get better. So tell me. But unless you tell me a different way to do it in a more effective way, then let's do it in this way. But then you have to have them buy into this and be open to objection because, you know, if they have objection, it's a good thing because then you can actually explain it. So it's not a negative stuff. And sometimes, you know, we just want to go fast, rush, tell them this is the way we do it. We learned it in the past. Don't object to it. And then people pay compliance. So it's really down to the investment of time you make upfront. I think, by the way, Nowadays, it's even more important to do it in the recruiting process, not yeah. the order, on how we work and explaining if this makes sense, get their input. I love that. And being open, what I heard you just say is the difference between commitment and compliance is purpose, the why we're doing something. And be an open enough leader to be able to understand and be open to objection because objection is probably the beginning stages of where compliance moves to commitment because it gives you the opportunity to address it. 
Well, it's a, it's a ladder, right? In which you start from, okay, being compliant to ask some questions, to try it, and then to be committed to it. But uh, it requires time. It requires, yeah, the ability to listen. Also. Johnny, that's a new concept for you, I think, is that we, we didn't really have that opportunity to object. There was compliance, and then our compliance equal commitment, I think, from from your days. No, I don't <laughs> right? think Luca, give me some help here, I, brother. I think, it, you know, I changed over time, you know. Oh, yeah, over time. But, you know, I remember there wasn't a lot of objections back in the day. So at least well, we there might have been. training under, so you understood the why and the yeah. how. Yeah. The what, the why, and the yeah. how. So now it was time to. And know, those who objected. Do it. Luca, those who objected, may they rest in peace. <laughs> Are they still alive? <laughs> no, they're not still alive, buddy. That's still alive. Hey, Luca, tell us a little bit about Johnny. Are you ready to, um, are you ready to transition to sprinkler? No, I want to ask, I mean, Luke has always been a great recruiter and spotting, yeah. you know, top talent. So Luca, just talk to the audience a little bit about, you know, what you've learned over the years, as far as the ability to not only spot top talent, but the ability to recruit top talent. Well, during the pandemic, I got to tell you too, it's been way more difficult. Because I found that actually the in-person meeting, especially for a certain position, to me has always been very, very critical. Because you can see the body. I mean, I speak with my hands, right? Like every yeah. time. So yeah, if you broke uh, your wrist, you'd have laryngitis. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, but uh, but that the reality is that what I do typically, I first try to understand the person. I don't look at all the track record. I really try to understand, you know, the background, the family the person is coming from, typically obstacle that you have to overcome in your life. And then I try to alternate, typically in interviews, the professional part with the personal part. Because everybody, everybody knows how to play an interview nowadays. So I try to break the flow to really try to understand the person in front of me. And... Uh, what I found also that I learned more not from the answers that they make, but from the questions that they make. Yes, beautiful. Love that. Because, because at the end, right? Uh, so right now, if you're the CEO of a company and you got someone that come to an interview to you, they probably already have five or six interviews. Okay, so they should know what the company does. They should know what the role is and I know. So then it's their opportunity to figure out who the hell is this Italian guy and how this can help me qualify if this is really the best opportunity for me. And by the way, the ability to qualify, it's more important than ever on your next job. If you don't qualify hard your next job, you're never going to qualify hard the deals that you're on. So the kind of questions that I receive in an interview and always give more chances you know, to ask me questions really give me a sense of the people. And, then, yeah, and to your point, if it's their fifth interview, it should be the depth of that question. How deep is that question? Right. Not a I don't want to hear a superficial question when you come and meet me as a CRO. And, and then I'm honestly not scared on telling someone. Well, that's a very superficial question, you know, after at the sixth interview, mate. I'm going to say it's also a good way to see, OK, was that sometimes there is a cultural factor, right? Was that, that done as a matter of respect or be politically correct? So then you give the chance to wake them up 
and react to it or with really poor, you know, superficial approach and I know. So it's not that if someone is going to make me one superficial question, it's over. I will tell the person, I will tell her or him that, listen, this was not a good question after five interviews and see how they react. And sometimes they turn around and, and you understand that they did that because of, you know, they wanted to show too much respect or what, but that's not, you know, what this job is about. You got to qualify. Right. And that's, so, the fun uh, that's what I'm sorry. That's the fun part. Going yeah. deeper, right. Uh, and qualifying hard. I still, I still have so much fun doing that. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Huh? I do. You know, you know how many times I ask why? Right uh, in a forecast session, or someone telling, Oh, I want to hire this person. I say, Why? And they give me this is internal, a superficial answer. I say, Okay, why? Uh, I can ask why six, seven times until yes. I get really the root of the thing. Right. And you know what? They learn when, when they hear the CRO after seven whys, they say, Okay, I gotta do this better next time. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. But the why, 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 I love it. So, Luca, you're at Sprinkler now. You're the CRO. It's a super powerful software platform, but I don't think a lot of people understand what it does and why it matters to customers. Can you give us a quick little overview on what Sprinkler does and why it matters to customers? Yes, thank you. So what we do, we basically help uh, our customers that are some of the very largest companies on the planet, from Microsoft uh, to Amazon to Samsung uh, to Mercedes, Prada, or the other, to basically be where their customers are. What does it mean? That, you know, once upon a time, the three of us, when we had an issue and we bought something, and we bought an article or something, we were not happy. We pick up the phone and we did a 1-800 number on an agent. We say, yeah, I'm not happy about the TV I bought or whatever, right? But guess what? Nobody does that anymore. They use digital channel to interact. They ask for help. Most of the time, not even to the vendor that they bought something. They ask for help to solve the problem. Or they post something in public, can be on Twitter, can be on Instagram, can be on a blog, can be on the live chat on your website, whatever, to express that they need help. So the digital channel, if it is social, messaging platform, live chat, whatever, are the way that now consumers interact with the brand. And what Sprinkle does capture this, doesn't matter if you are advertising to them, if you are engaging with your customer or prospect, or if you are providing customer services. And you can do it with one platform across, you know, 36 different channels and also the traditional way. Now we also have voice, for example. So that is not that you're going to do digital advertising to a customer that is not happy with a ticket open. Because probably it's going to get even more pissed when mm -hmm. you do that. To be able to do this, you need one platform that take away all these silos and basically unify the marketing part of the company and sales with the customer service part of the company. And that right. was the 13 years ago by Raji Thomas, our founder and CEO. And, uh, and I think he was smart seeing this so many years ago because the complexity that the brand experience nowadays, there are billions of conversations they have to be aware of every single day. And this is where we have this AI engine that help our customer doing that. Would you Excellent. buy something? 
<laughs> no, I know it's powerful because you can, you know, listen to what all your customers are saying about you and about the competition. You can interact with those customers. You can understand what problems they're having, like you said, in customer care. Now, am I going to market to somebody and try to get them to buy my product when they already have a problem with one of my other products? So it's a it's an easy way to understand the mindset of all your customers and also of you know how they're reacting to you and also the competition. So it's super powerful. We are we are we have a new definition. I'll call it like uh, we are sort of an operating system of the edge of anything that happened on the edge on all this digital channel and put in order that. So I think is a is a good definition, like you were saying right now. Yeah, excellent. Love Cap, it. you want to do a little wrap here? Or I'm you, ready, dude. I'm ready for a summary. Did you take Luca. good notes? I did. I did. Right, we're gonna we're gonna grade you at the end. All right. So, Luca, we started off just talking about your your really cool background and how you made the leap of conviction from your first job, <clears throat> which was with a frozen a frozen food supplier. And we talked about like just general characteristics. And I, I brought it up because I wanted people to understand, you know, don't miss the Luca Lazarones of the world uh, or the Adam Aaronses of the world or the, you know, the there's so many examples of that. And you broke it down in a simple way. You said, hey, you know, you had a great ability to connect and you had a curiosity, which equated to going deep, having the ability to go deep on questioning, on understanding. Um, and then also that job also gave you the experience, which I wanted to highlight of, you know, the lesson of experience and alignment. You did all those jobs in the beginning. Um, and, and Luca, we have people today that I'll ask them a question. I'll say, well, did you speak to somebody in marketing? And they're like, no, I didn't. And so they're complaining to me about somebody in marketing, but they didn't even pick up the phone and call the person in marketing. And they're, they're in the same freaking company. And it's just, I think it's just getting worse over the years. Uh, those alignment gaps. And so I really love your background and I would encourage people to think about how they can do that in companies when people join companies to make sure that people understand everything we do today is collaborative. There's almost every sale that we're working on is a collaborative sales environment and making sure you understand what customer success is doing. What is product doing? What is marketing doing? Uh, what are professional services doing? So I, I, I thought that was a great highlight. You also said some other characteristics that you look for to how to spot the Lucas of back in the day was a growth mindset. Um, and, and you talked about not having to be the smartest person in the room, which I can really identify with. It was the same advice that my father gave me. And for years, I thought I was just special and then realized that he was probably telling me something <laughs> that I needed to know. So I surrounded myself with people like Luca and John McMahon and Grant Wilson. And I think I learned that task pretty well. Um, and you also talked about not losing alone. Uh, ask for help are really great great characteristics. We moved into this post IPO conversation and you called yourself the chief repeating officer, meaning the repeatability predictability is really the name of the game in the public world. I also liked how you are constantly trying to simplify the way that you work. Um, you talked about obviously so much more scrutiny and the specific metrics, any metric being reported on that in the private world, you know, we can 
we can, you know, sometimes have a cursory conversation of those. Anything that's visible in the metric environment on a company in the public world is any shareholder, any person, any finance person reporting on that. It's up for grabs. And so you just have to have just have to be buttoned up on all of those metrics. You really talked about what I really liked is you called it take care of the revenue you have right now. And I think people like I see people when they go to and they go before they go pre-IPO, the smart companies, they really invest in that and they figure out what does customer success look like? What does renewals look like? What resources are we going to need to be able to do that? Because if you try to figure that out, once you become a public company, if you don't have those things in, in place around renewals, that's going to be a, a really, really bad story. You talked then, Johnny, moved us into the conversation of forecasting. I'll make sure I get these buckets right. I really, really like them. Live qualification. It begins with live qualification and being present. The greatest leaders, the greatest forecast. They're in the deals. They're in the business. They're working on the business, but they have the ability to get in the business with live qualification. Secondly, is they had to understand your team. You got to understand the people and the nuances because people create nuances, create variances, and then create historical trends that you have to, which is actually the third one, are the leading and lagging indicators, the data part of the job. And I loved how you talked about the weighted forecast and the historical activity relating to that. Uh, you also said that in the end, when Johnny said, when you have all these things and everything, these five different inputs that you have to consider, you didn't hesitate when he asked you, when you said, you know, how do you call the ball on the number? And you said, if I'm doing all the things that I just talked about really, really well, then my weighted number turns out to be highly, highly accurate. Um, and I want to make sure I get the last one in there, which was do not allow the lead or be very leery or do not allow. It says leaders be careful of leaders are not calling a number over their team number because then there's nothing. It's it's a vaporware underneath it. If the leader is calling a number over the team number, that's a challenge. You also made a comment on the C and the I of being critical champions in pain. And then we moved into kind of this responsibility that I wanted our listeners to hear Regardless, if you are an individual contributor today, if you are a leader today, if you're an individual contributor today, build your credibility as a great forecaster now as an individual contributor. Get a reputation, get a reputation of somebody that's uh, repeatable, somebody that's accurate. It's really, really hard to get that reputation after you become a leader. If you don't already have that, you're going to struggle to to get the job. You talked about leadership as a passion for coaching. We were talking about scaling a sales force. You then talked about simplifying. And that's when Johnny brought up the people, the process, and the playbook. Everything starts with the people, sales process, and qualification process, which you accurately highlighted as being different things. I wanted people to hear that uh, sales qualification process is not a sales process. Who does what, when, and really having that nailed by stage uh, creates a great opportunity for, for scaling. Third thing you talked about and simplifying the being audible ready with the playbook. I love what you said on commitment versus compliance, and it starts with why. I thought that was really, really important. I see leaders just cutting corners there 
and missing an opportunity to really get people committed because committing is committed is long lasted. Compliance is typically short term. Johnny asked you about recruiting for talent and you talked about, I love this and I knew you would answer this way, understanding the person and understanding that everybody has a story. And if I can understand their story first, I'll have an under, I'll have ability to understand them. Um, and you said the questions they ask can sometimes be just as important, if not more important than the answers that they give me. And I find that when we ask people these questions from an interview, I'll ask somebody, I'll say, hey, what questions did they ask you? And people say, well, what do you mean? And I'll be like, well, what question did the candidate ask you? Well, I didn't leave a lot of time for them to ask me questions. And so I just want people to think about that. If you're interviewing people today, you better be able to answer the question. What questions did that individual ask you? And then you gave a great recap on your experiences at Sprinkler and congratulations to that great success there, brother. Johnny, what I miss? I actually think that was beastly, dude. Job. That was beastly. I had to keep crossing off all the ones that I had. <laughs> and I was like, geez, he's getting all of them today. Unbelievable. What did I miss, Luca? Did I miss anything? I got to tell you, this sound is much, much better than what I said. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, brother. You're welcome. All right. So, Luca, now we have a little rapid fire for you. A couple of easy questions for you. Okay. What's your ideal day off of work? Oh, with the family here in Assisi. And uh, so, so we have a nice place and being with Georgia, uh, my little one and, and Anna and my wife, definitely, definitely enjoying the place here. Who cooks? Are you serious? <laughs> you don't cook at all? Oh, no. Not at wife. all? Wow. Well, yes, I can survive. Every oh, Italian Oh, you cook. can survive. What do you do? Cook something pasta. in the microwave? I my yeah, I can make my own pasta and all, but... Uh, but uh, yeah, I gotta tell you, we have a veggie garden here, and uh, and now I'm 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 on veggie, but you know because they're very different than the one you you buy at the market, uh, you know. Totally. So yeah. It's a it's a different thing. No, it's my wife, me, and my daughter, my older daughter as well. And what's your favorite meal? I, I gotta tell you, I'm enjoying the the veggie that we grow here more than, than anything. Obviously, I like pasta, pizza, like an Italian, but having your own veggie makes a difference. And what's, what's some of your favorite veggies? Uh, tomato, salad, zucchini. I really nice. like that. Nice. You have a favorite movie, Luca? I do. Miracle. Miracle. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Great one. That is a great movie. You know, I use, it in, I use it in a development session. Yeah. I got all the leaders back in BMC, you remember? The yeah. EMEA headquarters, there was actually an auditorium, right? And after a QBR, they were like, Oh, I remember there. that. Yes. <laughs> were you I there? Remember so that. After a QBR, everybody was ready to go to Amsterdam and finally say, No, we're going to get pizza and we're going to watch the miracle. They that was awesome. I was there. That was awesome. Yeah. But actually, such a powerful message. That movie is amazing to me. Yeah. Amen. Luca, how about the best concert you've ever been to? So I got to tell you, this one that I've been last year, here in Assisi, in the cathedral, you know, there is a, a, a famous massive cathedral of San Francisco. Mm. And, um, and they did a concert dedicated to the Seraphico for the Institute of where my daughter is, uh, with the National uh, Police Orchestra. And they played, you know, opera and, and some other classic uh, 
music in this cathedral. There were only a few people who were still, you know, partially COVID restricted. And the best part was that uh, Georgia was with us, that obviously she, we never got the chance like that. So that was by far the best concert I ever attended. Awesome. How about, do you have a favorite charity or anything like any charity you want to talk about, Luca? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know about that. So I talk about Assisi because there is this special place, Instituto Serafico di Assisi. You can find it on www.serafico.org, S-E-R-A-F-I-C-O.org. You'll have to text that to me to make sure that we get that in the show notes. I will, I will, www.serafico.org. And it's a special place that takes care of kids with multiple disabilities. And the uniqueness is that uh, because uh, my younger daughter has severe disability and I look all around the world on the places like this and I found it actually in Italy, not in other places, because they bring together the physical therapy that they need, the occupational therapy, and they got all sorts of medical treatment, including dentists inside the institute that are very important because for severely disabled kids like Georgia, if you ask her to open the mouth, the mouth she doesn't open the mouth. Right. So you need to have a very specific skills to take care of them. And uh, is a is a wonderful place. And I think I'll tell you everybody that I and I'm actually deeply committed to it and my friends as well. And every time they come and visit, uh, they don't come out sad because all this, you know, difficult this situation. You come out with energy for the love that uh, you see that uh, now, you know, these kids in very, very difficult situation, they have a, a, a life that, you know, still makes sense uh, and they can enjoy. It. And George has made incredible strides since the first time I met you. I think I met you before she was in that school and then uh, putting her in that in in that place. I don't want to call it a school, but just a just a place of well-being. And the strides that she's that she's gotten are just really uh, heartwarming. So congratulations, brother. That's awesome. Well done. Thank you. Hey, Luca, uh, Cap's going to wrap up, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to spend it with Cap and myself. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to, uh, you know, share another hour with you, which is, you know, has been few and far between the last couple of years, but hopefully we can do it some more. But be careful because I may ask you to say some stories like the one in Japan and you know what I'm talking about. With the coat? With the coat? Behind the lockers? Yeah, Yeah, we're going to do that sometime. (laughs) You're going to have to force him to tell that story, Captain. We're going to do that. We're we're definitely going to do that. Luca, um, you're one of our favorite. Um, You've been a great friend to force management. Uh, to me personally, and um, I, I just can't thank you enough for spending an hour with us, sharing your great wisdom. And there's there's no secret uh, to your success. These these things that you talked about today are are absolute money, and we thank you for sharing them with us, and we thank you for taking the time to be with us, dude. Just really, really well done. I have to thank you for the opportunity. Okay, the two legends here. <laughs> You're the man. You're the man. Thanks, brother. And for all of our listeners, thank you for listening to The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.